Welcome to KnowledgeCast. This is a look into the world of knowledge management, information management, data management, and everything in between. This is brought to you by Enterprise Knowledge. I'm Zach Wall, founder and CEO of EK. And today we're speaking with Stan Garfield, one of the biggest names in knowledge management. KM author, speaker, community leader, the list goes on. Stan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Zach. Glad to be here and thanks for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. So Stan, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I always like to ask people to lead off by defining KM, a phrase, a, a field that you've spent your entire life or most of it in, and one that, as you well know, has a lot of definitions to it. So what's yours? It does have a lot of definitions, and I even have several of my own that I use. But I think for the purposes of this discussion, I like to use the one where I talk about the purpose of knowledge management. And I think it starts with reusing intellectual capital. I actually have, I have a saying that says, knowledge management doesn't happen until somebody reuses something. So I start with the reuse part, because if, if we just contribute a bunch of content and put it in repositories and it's never reused, we're not really doing anything useful. So I start with it's fostering the reuse of intellectual capital. The second thing I would say, it's to enable better decision making. So if we're using knowledge effectively, we should be able to improve our decision making. And the third would be to create the conditions for innovation, to stimulate innovation, to allow innovation to happen. Now, I could go on and come up with lots more things and other definitions, but I think for purposes of here, I'll just stick with those, foster reuse, enable better decision-making, and create the conditions for innovation. Sam, I love the fact that you're jumping right to the why, the purpose, and the value. I think, as you well know, it's been one of the challenges in the field that there is a lot of talk about KM and, hey, here's a fancy technology and here's a wonderful, complex and convoluted process, but there's not enough why. So I love the fact that you've hit that. Let's talk a little bit about that second one. The first, reuse of knowledge, pretty self-explanatory, but enabling decision-making. Tell me more about that. Well, I think that one of the things that I've seen that we tend to not do well is to avoid making mistakes making poor decisions, doing the wrong things. And we've got our knowledge somewhere in our organization, which would have allowed us to not do that. But we didn't know about it, weren't aware of it, mm-hmm. didn't make itself available to us in time. So we'll make decisions based on misinformation, limited information, not having the inputs from all the sources that could potentially have helped us make a better decision. So I think about an example from when I was at HP where we were installing office automation software. And the first time we did one, we didn't uh, estimate it very well and we were off by a lot. But we shouldn't have made that mistake again. We should have Mm -hmm. been able to get it right the next time. But the second team that did it wasn't aware of the first one. So they made the same mistake and underbid again. And then it happened a third time. If we were doing things right, we would have made decisions based on the fact that we knew that we had done one of these before. We would have looked at the actual evidence of how long did it actually take and would have bid it better the second time. So I think putting in place processes that actually encourage that, where you get reviews, let's say, before you start working on a new project, where someone actually says, all right, have you gone back to look and see if we've done one of these before? And what was the outcome of it? And what did we learn from it? And how much are you reusing from that previous engagement and this new one? And we used to have a rule that if it came back with the answer, we're not reusing anything. We'd say, well, we probably don't want to do that then. Let's figure out something that we can reuse more. So if we have ways of feeding the experience we have collectively, and I always think the bigger the organization, the more difficulty it is to know what's been done before, what's been learned already. But if we have ways of feeding that in so that we take advantage of it, 
then I think we can make better decisions based on the collective experience and knowledge of all the people, even if they're spread out around the world. Okay, so that's great. And you've hit on one of my favorite words in KM, that being mistakes, right? Every organization makes mistakes. Every individual makes mistakes. Ideally, there's not a lot of repeating of the same mistakes. The trick that I find is that people love to share their successes. Many folks are not as comfortable sharing their mistakes. So how do you remove that fear of publicizing one's mistakes? How do you get people proud to share their mistakes? Because if they're not captured, then they can't be acted upon the next time around. You're right. And people are generally very reluctant to talk about them. And if you have a culture which penalizes mistakes or punishes people, then that's going to have a way of tend to suppress it. But if you have a culture that actually allows one to celebrate the learning from mistakes, then it's more likely that it will happen. One way that I found that worked was to allow that kind of sharing to occur in an anonymous fashion. We actually used to do knowledge sharing calls where at times we'd have somebody come on anonymously and tell their story of failure, but they wouldn't necessarily have to embarrass themselves. That is a challenge. And if the organization tends to shame people who have done something wrong, you'll tend to not have any of that come forward and you'll make horrible mistakes like we've seen made in manufacturing companies that have giant recalls that are necessary or giant fees and penalties they have to pay to the governments because of things that they did. They could have prevented if they had had an open culture where if they said, yeah, I made a mistake, but here's what I learned from it. So I think it has to start with the culture and the leadership. And then it goes into over time, what do people see? Are you being celebrated for sharing that or are you being punished for celebrating that? But then if you can give them ways where they can share in ways that don't uh, draw the spotlight to their mistakes, that can also help. Excellent. You know, we talk in terms of KM, we pull it apart into people, process, content, culture, and technology. I find that a, a lot of organizations are eager to focus on the technology piece. They are willing to focus on people and process. Culture sometimes takes a back seat. How do you prioritize culture change as part of KM? How do you convince an organization that that's where a lot of this begins, where it will rise and fall? Yeah, I think it's sort of an essential. The idea of a knowledge-sharing culture is often discussed, but what does that mean? It usually has some combination of elements from the top. What are the leadership position and how do they embody knowledge-sharing or not? And then from the ground up, because organizations will outlast their leaders and they'll have traditions in place that will endure Do they have a tradition of knowledge sharing, a tradition of celebrating that, or do they have different traditions? So when I think about a knowledge sharing culture, I think of one where if you tend to have a problem and you go to a community, let's say, and ask for help, is that something that's expected? If you're a new person and you went to the person sitting next to you, you say, what should I do? And they say, well, you go to the community and you ask for help and they'll help you and that's how you do it versus don't expose your ignorance, just talk to me, and if we can't figure it out, well, we'll just struggle along. So I think if you can get the combination where the leadership exemplifies the right culture, and if the grassroots people are exemplifying and have a tradition of it, then I say you're on the right path, and you can evaluate your culture according to a lot of different dimensions. I actually identified 50 different ways to assess a culture And it's either favorable or detrimental in each one of those categories. Mm. And if you add them all up, and if you got more favorable than you have detrimental, you're probably on the right path. And if you got a lot of detrimental, then you either have your work cut out for you because changing a culture isn't that easy. Or you might want to move and go to another organization where the culture is better. (laughs) Nice. 
you are widely known in the field for being a great sharer of your own knowledge. Is that one of the resources that one of our listeners would be able to find online? Or is that one uh, hidden in one of your own shared drives? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I definitely believe in, uh, in de- practicing what I preach. So, so everything that I've ever written or presented or anything else, it'd be interviewed like today is all available on my website, which you can find by just Googling my name. And that one where I talk about that story is definitely available. The uh, cultural assessment, 50 categories for assessing organizational culture is one of the blog posts that I've written. So it's definitely available. And I recommend that people think about the culture. I give you two examples of different cultures that I worked in. The computer industry for 25 years, starting with digital and then going through the merger with Compaq and then going through the merger with HP. And those companies all tended to have a culture that I would describe as an engineering culture where it was already sort of in the way that the things were done that people shared. The, the communities actually existed when I joined digital, which is 40 years ago uh, next month. There already had communities in place, and that was kind of the way things worked. If you had a problem or a question, you went to the community and you asked and you got the answer. So to me, that engineering culture was conducive to knowledge sharing. It's kind of the way engineers worked, and they looked to their peers for help, and they tended to share with each other. And then later on, when I worked for the big four companies, I worked for a couple of them, I found a different culture in place where sharing across silos wasn't the norm. You would share within your particular structure under your particular partner, but sharing with some other partner, not so much, right? So that wasn't built in. And therefore, it was harder to do things like communities there because they didn't have that sort of in their DNA. Well, there's a couple pretty clear reasons, right? I mean, one is there's internal competition. You want to be the partner that generates the most revenue. But what I've found in those bigger companies is there's also a sense of fear. Will I get in trouble if I share this? Will I upset one of the managing partners? Will I reveal something that's confidential to a client? So how do you deal with that? That removal of fear tends to be, I think, one of the greatest things you can do to create a culture of knowledge sharing, but it is very difficult. It is. And if that culture of fear is there, it is hard to overcome. Among the ways to overcome it, you either have to have different leaders who come in and try to help overcome it through their own examples, or you can try to have at least you might call skunk works projects that rise up from below where that fear is overcome by the people who believe strongly in knowledge sharing. And even though it's not coming from the top, they do it anyway, right? And if you can get the combination of the two, that's the most powerful. But I think of one example at HP that I like to cite a lot. The most profitable business unit of HP was the printing business. In fact, that's really where most of the profit came from. So we built all kinds of computers and we did all kinds of consulting and we did maintenance work, but those weren't all that profitable. The printing business, you know, selling printers and ink and toner, that's where profits came from. The head of the printer business began to blog on an internal blog platform that was created. And it was actually him. It wasn't somebody ghost blogging for him. And the people in his business unit saw that and they all became energized and they started commenting on his blog and he had to respond back and it was really him. And then they uh, they started blogging and there was a whole culture that built up based on that leader leading by example. And I didn't see it in the other business units. It was different. But in that one, that great energy that came about to me set the example for how you would want to do it. If you could get your leader even doing a little bit of that, let's say participating in a community or answering questions periodically or celebrating someone who had done some knowledge sharing. That to me was the most powerful thing that you could do amongst all the things you could do to set the tone was seeing the leader lead by example. 
Excellent. Well, in your Skunk Works example, now we're getting into innovation as well, right? The idea that there's a ton of ways to foster collaboration, to have people reaching across division, to surface new ideas. You're doing such a great job of sharing real world stories with us. Do you want to share a story of where an organization successfully instituted a culture of innovation and generated a little ROI as a result, perhaps? Yeah. In fact, at HP, when I was there, our slogan was HP Invent. So there was actually the tagline that we were trying to follow. Now, I had to guard against the potential corollary to that HP reinvent. We didn't want to (laughs) reinvent the wheel, but inventing new was good. Reinventing was bad. So I tried to pitch that message. But yeah, we had some really good examples there. I mentioned that blog platform. What tended to happen was individual business units across HP would each come up with their own innovations. And what we tried to do was instead of slapping their hand and saying, no, you're not supposed to be doing that, we'd say, okay, let's adopt that as the blog platform for all of HP. And a different business unit came along and developed their wiki platform using MediaWiki, which they call HPedia. And we said, let's adopt that as the wiki platform from all of HP. And another group came up with the thread discussion capability using a tool called UBB Threads. And we said, let's call that the HP forums and use it across. And that approach allowed us to take advantage of all that entrepreneurial spirit and innovation while not stymieing it by saying, no, no, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're the printing business, not the knowledge management department. And so by embracing that approach, we got a lot more innovation than if we had said, no, stay in your lane. You know, you've got to let us do this. And we ended up with a lot of tools that we could put the umbrella over and say, this is the knowledge management environment. And then other people then became encouraged to build tools on top of that. So one person ended up developing a tool called Water Cooler, which integrated all those other tools using RSS feeds to, you know, to collect data from disparate sources and supply it as an individual personal profile. So I thought that was a nice, innovative environment where everybody could build on what other people had done and not yeah. be told to, you know, to stay quiet. KnowledgeCast is brought to you by Enterprise Knowledge, the world's largest dedicated knowledge management consultancy. From training to benchmarks, strategy, design, prototyping, and all the way to enterprise-level implementations, Enterprise Knowledge wants to be your services partner. Spanning the fields of knowledge management, knowledge graphs, data, learning, advanced content management, and enterprise artificial intelligence, contact us at info at enterprise-knowledge.com to discuss how we can support you. You know, I've never asked you this question, which I'm surprised by, but I just heard you use the word data and you're talking about threaded discussions and some other technologies. I think you know, in fact, you just recently heard me say that I'm a firm believer in not worrying about the lines between knowledge management and information management, data management, that the most advanced organizations are those that are looking at all of these things collectively. That said, some in our field feel very strongly against that. Where do you stand? Where do the lines get drawn? Do we need to worry about it? Or are we better off just looking at things collectively across an organization? I like to think more holistically. I think of knowledge management as embracing many different disciplines, and it doesn't embrace them entirely. There's overlap. So we'd have Venn diagrams where we intersect, and sometimes things fall mostly within, and sometimes they're only sort of partially within. But I've identified 50 different components of knowledge management. And if you think about that, no one organization can master all of those or even implement all of those, right? And they're going to use the ones that make sense for their objectives. And so with that in mind, I like to think more inclusively. So if we overlap with other departments, that's fine, but let's treat them as 
as partners, include them, not sort of draw the lines and say, all right, well, you're IT and we're KM and we're adversaries. Yeah. I like to think of us, we're partners. We're going to do things together and we'll figure out which things each of us will do. But let's collaborate on them. So that would be true for data management. It'd be true for records management. It'd be mm-hmm. true for learning and development. We share so much with so many disciplines. Yeah. Let's celebrate that, embrace it, and let's carve out the areas that we can, you know, with our KM team, we can't do all of them. Let's carve out the things that we want to do and let's embrace our partners to do the others, but bring that capability within the fold of our KM program. That's well said. And I really didn't know what your answer was going to be to that, but I'm a little relieved. (laughs) So that's wonderful. Stan, you've been doing this a long time. It's notable to me that the last couple of years we've seen a pandemic, the great resignation, and now everybody's talking artificial intelligence, chat GPT, this and that. Is this a real different kind of period for KM? Is it as dynamic as it feels? Or have you seen periods of flux like this before? I've seen periods of flux like this before. And so kind of, I'm optimistic that this one will be a good one. I'm optimistic mm-hmm. about what these new tools will bring to us. But if you go back in time, yeah, we've gone through this before. In fact, AI is not new. I remember being involved with AI when I joined Digital 40 years ago. We actually had an employee that we sent off to AI University. You know, that, so we've been around that a few times, but now it sounds a little more promising for how it can apply to KM. Then if you look about when we got around the turn of the century and we got into what we started calling Web 2.0, that, that felt new and exciting, right, at the time. Yeah. But I even go back further. What about before the internet? I'm old enough to be pre-internet. That was exciting. You know, I remember I've always been someone that loves to share information. I haven't always had the easiest ways of doing it, right? So in the early days, it was like physical copies of things, mail them around in inter-office envelopes. Oh, yeah. I remember those envelopes. We got further along and we could share things across a network. That was a big step forward. When the intranet came along, that was like huge for me. Like, wow, we can put something on a page and everyone can just go and pull it. I don't have to push it at them. So to me, that felt radical. And then the internet and the World Wide Web, I mean, we all seem seem to forget that we we used to live without any of those things. And yet we were still trying to do knowledge management back then. And so those were big. Web 2.0 added uh, the the blogs and the wikis and the tags. and, And that was an exciting time. But we also know through the hype cycles of things that they come up and they come down, we called things Enterprise 2.0 at one time. We don't use that term anymore. So, um, so I think we will have to remain sort of health with a healthy skepticism. Uh, yeah, these things look exciting. Let's figure out how to use them. Let's learn about them. Let's try them out. I'm optimistic about them. We also know from history that sometimes they go through the hype cycle and come down the other side. So let's see how we can take advantage of them now. Skeptical optimism. I like it. And yeah, I mean, what I say is KM's been happening ever since the first painting was drawn on a cave wall. So this is not new, but I do think it's an exciting time. Now, let's talk about your optimism. What are you seeing today that excites you? Well, in addition to the chat GPT and equivalents, I just got introduced to a new one yesterday called PI, which has this very sort of humanistic chatting style where it asks you questions as well as you asking it questions. So each one oh, of cool. these things coming along just looks really interesting to me. I'm very, very big on them and the potential that they have. In fact, when I was asked about well, how can we use these for KM, I went to ChatGPT and asked it to help me answer that question. It came back ah. with some, some pretty good answers that I could use. But my optimism, I think, is based on a few things. 
One is, despite the fact that knowledge management has always gone through cycles of implementation, meaning that companies tend to eliminate it at times, and then they have to always reestablish it because they still need it. Mm -hmm. So that, in some ways, you could be down on that and say, why can't we be more institutionalized? Why aren't we a given the way HR and, and finance is? But we always keep getting reinstated because the need is always there. The need doesn't go away. So I'm optimistic in that we keep getting reinstated. When a program is eliminated, it comes back. We still keep getting many new people entering the field. We still see jobs being created. Firms like yours are keeping busy consulting. So those are all positive indicators to me that we're doing okay. And if chat GPT and its equivalents lead to an explosion of it, that would be a good thing. And the other thing I've noticed is that disciplines like community management are now becoming much more normalized. We used to do communities sort of almost in the shadows. And now because of the fact that companies tend to have brand-oriented communities and they hire community managers in large numbers to lead those, that at least gives some validity to that as a profession. So people who say, I want to be a community manager, now that's a recognized job. You could go out and find jobs with it. Whereas at one time, that would have been a little bit harder. You would have had to look for it under some other name. So I think there's room to be optimistic. Where I think the real future lies is, Will we ever get to the point where KM is institutionalized? It's a given. They would teach it in business schools. I don't know. I would like to think that we would, but we're still moving yeah. in that direction. But we are moving in that direction. I mean, the trend is there. And from my own anecdotal evidence, I, if we could think back to the last impending recession, what was it, 2008, I remember I was consulting at the time even then, and there was a ton of KM work that was canceled, projects pulled number of folks experiencing layoffs. This time around, I'm not saying it's different because it never is quite, but we're actually seeing more work than we've ever seen. I'm enthusiastic that organizations seem to be prioritizing this in a way that they haven't before. So it's not just about the cool new technology. You know, Going back to your point about culture, the value around reuse and enabling decision-making and innovation, I think CEOs are getting it this time around. And probably because of folks like you who've been pounding that drum and spending so much time educating the field. So thanks for that. Stan, speaking of that, let's talk about your history. How did you get into KM in the first place? Well, I've always been interested in sharing information, almost like a passion for sharing. When we're talking about trying to not have things be secretive. I talk about the idea of moving from a need to know to a need to share. I would say I've always had a need to share. And uh, even when I was a young student in school, I'd go and write things on the blackboard to share them with my class. So I guess that's in my blood. We obviously didn't have a field called knowledge management for some time. But when I started working in the computer industry, I always found ways of sharing through newsletters and other mechanisms like that. One of the things that I did when I was at Digital Equipment Corporation was that I needed to help my organization know whom to contact for different purposes. And there was no org chart of digital. We had 135,000 employees at our peak, and no one really knew exactly who was in charge of what or whom to contact. It was not written down anywhere. If you were lucky, you'd get an org chart for an organization. So I started to write this down, and I started collecting, and eventually I formed this document that was called the Key Contacts List. Tried to go from the top down to show who was in charge of what, and then who reported to them, and so forth. And the purpose was so that people that worked in my consulting team would know, okay, here's the person in engineering, I have to call for that. And here's the person in marketing, I have to call for this other purpose. And so this thing grew and grew and it became known. And I would send it out to my team of several hundred consultants once a month. But then someone forwarded it outside of the team and it started to become like a virus. It was forwarded all around digital. 
multiple times, and I would get it in my inbox periodically saying, look, here's the org chart of digital. And so eventually information security came to me and said, are you the person responsible for this? And I was going to be in trouble. And they said, you've got to put digital confidential in the bottom of each page. Okay, I'll do that. But it became the most popular document of digital. I had subscribers. I would update it once a month. I had 30,000 subscribers to it. So that's an example that showed me that people are hungry to know things. They want to know things. They want to know whom to contact. They want to know who knows what. And if I could help them with that, that was gratifying. So I shared that. I shared news. I shared other things. I was always doing that kind of thing. And then when the internet came along, which I recall was in the mid-90s, that got to be something that I could exploit. I could put things on the internet. And then when it came time to start the first KM program at Digital, our executive came to me and said, um, come with me. We're going to go visit Ernst & Young at their Center for Business Knowledge in Cleveland, and you should come along. Because I was known as like the guy that did stuff like this. So we went yeah. there, and he showed us what they were doing, and I, and he turned to me and said, I want you to do this for us at Digital. So that was in 1996. So 27 years ago is when mm-hmm. I started doing it as a full-time job. But I would say I had been doing it for some time in my spare time. I always had some other job. But I did now sharing always in addition. So it was kind of recognized finally when I was asked to do it. And that's how I got started. I have a background in computer science, started out as a computer programmer. So I had the technical skill. But then I also started out by going to journalism school. So I had that side of communicating. And I think that's a useful combination of understanding and not being scared of technology, being able to to use it effectively, but also being able to write and speak and communicate. It's in any field, it's an incredibly powerful combination. And KM, I think it is absolutely critical to be able to bridge the gap between technology and business and speak both languages is, is one of the most important skills. What are the others? And let me ask the question more broadly. If somebody's listening to this and they're saying, boy, I, I want to be Stan Garfield when I grow up, what would you tell them to do? How would you help guide the next generation of KM leaders? I usually recommend they start by reading, right? I don't know if people read as much as they used to or if they're just skimming through phones, but, if, you know, reading books like you have written and I have written, reading blogs, reading periodicals, going to websites, start by soaking that all up. You mentioned my website. I've got so much content on there that no one could possibly read all of it, but they could <laughs> go there and read some of it. Right? So, so start by soaking that up and then uh, join KM communities. I lead a community that's been around yeah. now for 18 years called the SIKM Leaders Community. They could join that. It doesn't cost anything. They can immediately start benefiting from that. There's conferences they can attend, conferences like KM World that are held every year in D.C. Attend those. Go to the workshops that are held on the first day and attend those. Attend any other training that you can find. And in some cases, take advantage of the fact that there are graduate programs now that mm-hmm. you can get a master's degree in knowledge management. And many people who have worked in industry for some time are going back to school and getting those degrees. And I think those are valuable so they can go to school like Columbia University or Kent State University or several others and get a graduate degree. And then I'd say the final thing for someone starting out in the field is to find a mentor. We're offering a mentoring program through SICAM now. In fact, I'm mentoring right now four different people. I just got off call with one of my mentees this morning by having a mentor, you get all the benefits of this knowledge sharing from somebody who's done it, and it's a personal relationship. So I'd say if people would do those things, they'll boost their expertise, they'll be in a better position to enter the field. That's very cool, Stan. How do you select your mentees? I use a simple approach, Zach. It was 
we asked a bunch of people in SICM, you know, do they want to participate? And if so, did they have somebody they wanted to serve as a mentor? And the four people that named me, I picked them. I'm guessing you're being a little humble. Um, my guess would be there would be a lot more than four people that would be very proud to have you as a mentor. You mentioned the master's programs. I believe that you are an advisor to Kent State's program and also Columbia. I presented three times at the Columbia program when they would do their spring residency. So I have strong connections to that. And now I'm currently on the advisory board for Kent State's program. Nice. Okay. So let's talk about Kent State. What skills, what competencies should a graduate of that program have? What direction are you helping to take the program would be another way of asking that. Right. So I think they have to have some broad skills and understanding all the things that knowledge management can do. Then they have to have some more narrow skills in some specialties. And so I always say to people, you should probably try to get at least one specialty that you're really good at. It's not possible to get expertise in many, many specialties. It's not possible. But let's say, for example, that you were going to focus on communities or you're going to focus on taxonomy or you're going to focus on AI technology. Just pick one of those and go in depth in that. So take some courses, maybe do some independent study, write you know, a dissertation on that. Then when you emerge, you'll have both the experience of knowing what the field can do broadly, but then you can say, and for me, I have a particular in-depth skill in this area, and that to me will enhance your ability to be employed and also to become maybe another thought leader in the field, somebody that others turn to for what they have to share. Excellent. You've been incredibly prolific, as you self-noted, that nobody could possibly get through your own website. What's a day in the life look like for you now? How do you spend your work day? So I retired from Deloitte in 2016, so it's now seven years of retirement, but I've stayed active in the field since then. So I've my day usually consists of some catching up on correspondence, some writing, some sharing. I try to share something every day. I usually post both in Twitter and LinkedIn, and that will be a link to maybe a discussion going on in the community. It could be a link to an article that I've just published. It could be a link to an old article that I've gone through and updated the links in. There's something every day that I'm posting On a weekly basis, I have a blog that comes out through a software company called Lucidia. And so there's a weekly blog that I write. And then once a month, I'm writing a series called Profiles in Knowledge, where I profile the different thought leaders in our field. And this most recent one is one of your colleagues, Bill Kaplan, who was active with us at the Midwest KM Symposium. I always try to pick somebody who's written a fair amount that I can then sort of curate their their output and put that into a profile. So I've yeah. I think Bill's was the 93rd in that series. So a lot of writing. Uh, I lead the SICAM Leaders Community, which means uh, hosting a monthly call and uh, monitoring the discussions there. I don't have to do too much around that, but I'll do things like add a hashtag to a thread or, or make sure that something got put into the right thread if it got removed. But otherwise, it kind of runs itself pretty well. And beyond that, the mentoring that I mentioned, I, I do that. Uh, so I'm still pretty active. I'd say a typical day. There's multiple hours that I spend on those activities, and then I try to leave multiple hours for other things. Nice. If you don't mind my asking, what are the other things? I dream of learning to play the guitar when I retire. Was there a thing that you picked up or a particular hobby that you really enjoy doing when you're not KMing? Not that I've picked up, but I spend time every day walking. So I spend at least an hour a day walking. So that's one thing that's given. I also spend time listening to music. 
It could be while I'm walking. I like to curate music, so I curate playlists of music and uh, do that regularly. I've started a new newsletter, which is not KM-oriented. It's uh, talking about my different interests. So it picks a book every week. I review a restaurant. I have a, a favorite musical group. I have a sports hero, and I have a humorous photo. So those five things, I call it the Fave Five. You can subscribe to it on Substack, where I'm doing that one. So that's sort of taking all my non-KM interests and putting them out once a week in a newsletter. And then I f- try to do a fair amount of staying in contact with other people. So I have groups yeah. of people that we regularly get together with. Uh, we have a discussion group that meets once a month for dinner. So I try to foster uh, you know, social networks outside of knowledge management. It's interesting. It sounds like all of your hobbies are about knowledge sharing and collaboration. <laughs> so I guess you really did pick the career that was meant for you. Stan, we talked early on about sharing mistakes. What's the biggest mistake that you've ever seen an organization make when they were going through a KM transformation, when they were trying to get it right? I think the biggest mistake that I've seen is the idea that you can either roll out technology without worrying about you know why you're doing it, it's just for the sake of it, and then trying to force people to do things that they don't want to do. So I'll give you an example. This is one of the things yes. I offered to debate somebody on one time. I said, if you could only pick one thing that you could do out of the 50 km components, you can only do one of them, what would it be? And my answer has always been, I would do communities. And I could go into length, but I won't about why that is. But in this case, the organization was really pushing on filling in skills profiles. And my argument was, that's a frustrating task because people don't really want to fill them in. And even if they do, they'll do the minimum and they won't keep it up to date. And even if you use the skills profile to contact somebody, they may not be available. So uh, what are you actually getting out of all that? And they went to great difficulty to try to force people to do it. And and I said, don't bother with that. It's, It's a hopeless task. Instead, if you have communities, you can let expertise emerge from the community. You don't have to fill in a skills profile. We'll know who the experts are by who tends to answer the questions. Let's put our emphasis on communities and getting more people to participate in them and we'll get the side benefit of what you're trying to do with skills. So that's an example of people trying to do things that you've already either tried and shown not to work or that just go against human nature. Another one was they wanted to put in content rating of content in the repository from one to five stars. And I said, you know, I've been through this before and we can learn a lesson from my experience. It doesn't work inside of an enterprise. You're not going to get anything out of that. Much better to have a simple binary thing like a like or something equivalent. But a one to five rating, you'll get a few ones from somebody who doesn't like the poster. You'll get fives from them and nothing else. So it's not helpful. But no, they didn't listen to me. We went ahead and implemented it. And guess what? It didn't work again. So we didn't use knowledge sharing or knowledge reuse ourselves. We couldn't learn from our own experience that I was bringing to bear. So I think those are some examples. If we don't apply knowledge management ourselves to our own KM programs, which I've seen multiple times, then we're going to fail at it, even though we should know better. And then let's ask the reverse question. And you're not allowed to say reuse knowledge. What's the one thing an organization must do to be successful in a KM transformation? It's got to put in place one KM leader. And I always say you got to have at least one. You can have more, but you don't want to have fewer than one. Meaning if it's my part-time job, it's not likely to go well. So pick one person and make sure that that person is the right person, that they have the right skills and experience, temperament, so that they can succeed. And it's usually somebody who has the passion for it. 
who, who believes deeply in it. It's not somebody that's just being assigned this because they took them out of some other job. I've seen that happen before. It can't be that. It has to be somebody who goes, this is what I want to do. I believe in this. I'm passionate about it. If you stop them and ask them, they would give you an impassioned speech about what they're doing and why, where yeah. you get all riled up. But not somebody who goes, well, yeah, I used to be in charge of tax for the U.S., but now I've been reassigned <laughs> to this knowledge management thing. I don't really know what it is. I know that guy. He did not do well <laughs> in that role. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want anybody failing into KM. All right, right. So let's close with this, Stan. Let's fast forward five years. What's the field look like? I always think the field ends up looking similar to what it is today, you know, because I've yep. been asked that question every five years for the past 25 years. <laughs> And so I don't think it's changed that much. You know, when I look at the 50 KM components, I've only had to update that a few times and make a few tweaks to it, even though I first developed it back in 2006. So that's 17 years ago. I haven't seen it change that much. So I don't think the field will change radically over the next five years. Some of things may become more important. Some things may go away. Some things that we used to think were important may may not be anymore. I'll give you an example. We used to talk about RSS feeds. I don't think that's a big deal. <laughs> right? Yeah, but, not so much. Okay, so some of those things will fall by the wayside. Wikis, to me, have never really taken off the way we had once thought they might. Uh, Wikipedia is certainly a huge success, but there aren't too many examples of wikis working inside of enterprises that I've seen work. So I think there's going to be cases like that where, yeah, that was a nice thing, but we don't really use it. Yeah. And then there'll be some new ones that come along. Some of these chat tools might become more prominent and we might create a separate category for them. And so I'd say that's where probably the big change is imminent, how we adopt and embrace that. But otherwise, the same challenges that have always existed, and you've alluded to it when talking about culture, those are still the same challenges. I don't see that changing. We're still going to be fighting the battle of we need to do change. We need to have knowledge sharing culture. And I don't see that going away. The big thing that I think that we've missed out on along the way is on motivation. How do we motivate people mm. to do these things? And, you know, I was a big believer in using recognition and reward systems and now gamification. And I don't yeah. think that's widespread. I think that's been implemented in some cases. Some cases, companies have tried it and backed away from it. But I do think that's an area that we need to do better where people get more of a motivation to do the things we want them to do for knowledge management. So... Two points of note here. One is when I asked you what you thought might change, you really took that technology bent to it, right? You mentioned wikis and chat tools and you know AI in the future. So to your point, people process content culture, probably pretty consistent. The outcomes, the goals that you mentioned, reuse, enabling decision-making, acting on good knowledge, innovation, they're not going to change. The technology no. might make it easier or harder, depending on the case. But the field as a whole is pretty well cooked when it comes to its goals and intended outcomes. Now, you mentioned gamification. I'm a big believer in gamification. And my argument would be the reason that many organizations have backed off of it is that they were trying to incentivize the right behavior in the wrong way. So they were looking at it from a point solution. One organization that both you and I know, for instance, said, hey, if you want to get promoted and get bonuses, you need to share knowledge. But they didn't say when they had to share the knowledge. They didn't say what kind of knowledge. So people would just dump a bunch of bad content into a repository the week right. before their annual review. I think there's a wonderful opportunity to revisit some of that thinking and do it better. Are you seeing anybody doing it really well at this point that could be a model? I think there probably are some. We had on our SICAM call last week, we had Gloria Burke from Slalom on, and mm. she seems to be doing a nice job of getting all these ingredients into place there 
in a relatively short time. So it's almost like she got a nice greenfield, clean slate to go into and start yeah. taking advantage of all of her experience over the years at many different organizations and doing it right. So I'm hopeful that that will continue to be a good example. I think that there probably are. I don't know off the top of my head all the ones that are doing it. I know that Goodyear at one time had success with using mm-hmm. game, game approaches. But I think that you're absolutely right about it. It can work really well if you get the right standards in place. And I found that my experience with it at HP, it worked really, really well. We had a program which we called KM Stars. This had been a vision of mine from the very beginning. I had started out wanting to do that at digital. It took me forever to get to the point where we finally put it in place. But when we finally did, and it was through a Skunk Works effort of my team, but when we finally put it in place, we learned something immediately. We found, okay, don't do this, but do this, and we iterated. But before long, we had it really working well where we were able to select every month three KM stars. And initially, there was just recognition. Eventually, we added a financial reward component. And as you know, people will say, oh, you shouldn't do that because that's, you know, they'll game the system and they'll, you know. But no, that's not true because if someone tries to game the system, they're doing it in the open and you can see it. And you can go to them and say, you know, don't do that. So we never really had any problem with that. What it found was that people got really enthusiastic about it. And the best part of it for me was not the fact that people were excited and, and got the awards. It was that when they won the award, I'd ask them to do one thing, and that was to write a story for me of about three paragraphs in length <laughs> about how they got to be a KM star. And those stories were the most powerful benefit of it, because now, instead of me trying to preach to the organization why they should do these behaviors, it was their peers telling them why they had done it and what benefit they had gotten out of it. And now that story is more powerful than anything I could say. And what was amusing about it is that there was this financial reward that we added. And so sometimes they would write to me and go, well, we were, you know, I haven't gotten my uh, my money yet. And I go, oh, <laughs> you know, you forgot to send me your story. <laughs> and the story would immediately arrive, but it yeah. was a good story. It was never just something they threw together to get the money. And the story then came in and then they got their money. So to me, yes, those things can work. But what do you think is going on there? They're seeing the money as a nice thing. But they also see it as a sign that this is important to the leadership. If they're investing this much in it, it must be important. Maybe I should be doing it. The old adage, put your money where your mouth is, right? right? right. Leaders can say KM is important. Rewarding it is even more important. And frankly, modeling the right behavior is even more important. Stan Garfield, let me thank you directly. I mean, I always enjoy interacting with you. Thank you for coming on, but also thank you for everything you've done for the field. You are a true leader. You have really shaped what KM means today. So thank you very much, sir. Well, you're welcome. And I appreciate hearing that from you. For our listeners, thanks for joining this episode of KnowledgeCast. To check out more, please visit our website at enterprise-knowledge.com. Thanks, everybody.